Hello, Andrew Valentine, Head of Research for JLL in Australia. Thanks for joining us again. Always great to be back talking about our, our results and what we're seeing in the market. JLL's analysts, your team, have been gathering all the data for quarter three of 2023. And so you're here to give us the lowdown on what some of the, the key findings have been. You've pinpointed three in particular that we can go through today. You want to take us through them just quickly? Sure. So I thought the first area we could touch on is some of the sectors that were really challenged over the last few years and having a look at their recovery trajectory. So the three in particular I wanted to spend a little bit of time on is what we've seen in hotels and hospitality, the broader retail sector, and also the, the student accommodation market. Uh, it's very topical still to be talking about the office sector. So that was the, the second area I wanted to explore and really delve into the story around quality and location that we're seeing across a, a number of the different geographies. And then finally, what's happening in the, the broader capital markets, having a look at where transaction volumes are, as you know, they're at very low levels, but looking at where they're sitting in terms of a historical context and what we're seeing a little bit with the, the price discovery journey. Why don't we kick off on that first one? So some of the sectors that have been challenged um, the most over the past few years and, and where they're at now, um, you mentioned hotel, retail and student accommodation. Yep. So, yeah, if you look at the hotel sector in particular, it has recovered really strongly over the past 18 to 24 months. And if you think about the different drivers for that sector, everyone gets very fixated on international tourism. And that clearly is a positive factor for the, the broader sector, but it really sort of supports certain markets. But what's been more interesting is the recovery we've obviously seen in domestic tourism. Uh, we've started to see an improvement in the number of business conferences as we've become more mobile. And also the whole story around visiting friends and family that drive that hospitality sector. So when you look at the actual numbers that we're seeing, the average daily room rates are significantly higher than where we were back in 2019 across all major geographies. We've yet to see the sector return to full capacity, but when you make an adjustment for that capacity and talk about revenue per available room, most of the geographies have now captured that 2019 peak uh, through 2023. So that's obviously from a, a numbers perspective is, has been very positive. Uh, if you look at the outlook through to 2024 and just look at the two largest geographies of Sydney and Melbourne, uh, RevPAR, or revenue avail uh, per available room, is expected to grow by 23% in Melbourne and 30% in Sydney through to 2027. And it's been interesting looking at different types of investors and the sectors that they're focused on. And while we're going to talk in a little more detail about transaction volumes across the broader market, if you look at hotel transaction volumes through this year, they're already above the 10-year high, and they're expected to be in proximity of that record year that we saw back in 2015. So we're certainly seeing investors understand that the demand side of the equation is improving, and there's a sector that they believe is actually going to uh, deliver, as I said, quite strong uh, rev par growth over the next four to five years. Okay, great. Retail, what's happening? So retail is interesting. I mean, obviously, the if you look at the most recent numbers that came out of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, retail turnover growth actually surprised on the upside. But really, through the course of this year, we have seen overall retail turnover growth start to moderate. And part of that moderation has come through cost of living pressures that we're seeing. But interestingly, going to that story around population is generally when you bring people into the country, 
there's a significant multiplier effect around their consumption that you see come through. And we've certainly seen that positive impact flowing through the sector more broadly. But if you look at the, the most recent reporting season that we've just been through, virtually all of the major shopping centre owners are recording positive releasing spreads. So that's ultimately saying that, you know, market rent is above passing and they're able to capture that. So that's certainly been a story which has been positive in terms of uh, owners of shopping centres. And the other area that's been quite interesting to follow, and I don't think we've fully finished this journey, is if you go back two years ago and look at the NAB online retail survey, it was saying that online retail was equivalent to 14.3% of total retail sales. Now, while their most recent observation in September showed an increase, it equates to 12.8% of total retail sales. So we saw an acceleration in online. We've now seen a moderation. And while it's certainly different for each of the respective retail categories, it's interesting to look at that story that we're seeing around stabilization of overall online penetration. So where was that online penetration in COVID times when we were all shopping on our computers? As I said, two years ago, back in September 21, we got up to 14.3%. If you go back to the pre-COVID period, we were in single-digit territory. So yes, we've seen a significant uplift in terms of that overall, overall spending. But if, when you go, and I think anyone that goes to their local shopping centre will comment on just how much foot traffic they can actually see around it. And a lot of the owners have been very active in terms of creating experiences within the centre and creating a real reason for people to want to go to the centres around that experience. And generally, when you get people within the centres and they're captive, you see them then spending on discretionary items as well. So that's the pull, isn't it? It's the experience. But also service retail as well, you know, anything related to sort of healthcare as well. I'd call that more of that service retail offering. So the tenancy mix has certainly changed for a number of centres. Now, the tenancy mix is always very aligned to that local retail catchment. So for a number of the owners, they've been looking at essentially what is the optimal mix for the catchment that I've, in, I've been in. And they've been very proactive over a number of years. And what you can see through those positive releasing spreads is a sign that they've been successful and ultimately achieving that very strong tenancy mix. And this is all despite cost of living pressures. Yeah, look, I mean, I think most mature economies, households would say that they're facing, you know, cost of living pressures. Inflation prints are, are quite frankly too high for most mature economies. We have started to trend down, but yes, cost of living clearly is something that we're watching closely in terms of how that impacts consumption patterns. I keep coming back to population growth. You know, population growth is a key multiplier. And when you see the level of growth that we've seen in Australia is very positive for a whole range of commercial property sectors. And when you look at our population growth here in Australia, it's significantly higher than what we're seeing and other mature economies. This might sound like a stupid question, but if we didn't have that population growth, then would we still see that pace of activity or recovery in these markets that we've, you know, spoken about? I look to me, population growth is necessary for any mature economy to continue to grow. And given that Australia's population growth is very much driven by overseas migration, you know, what we saw through the COVID period was essentially border shut and we didn't see that and, and population growth went to very, very low levels. So when you don't have population growth, you don't have that multiplier effect. So yes, to me, it is a very key variable uh, for when we look at the performance of commercial real estate. So it's a pretty simple correlation. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very basic stuff. I mean, you look at it, 
you know, logistics and industrial, we've said for a number of years, every additional head of population is 4.5 square meters of floor space. That's been a little higher over the last few years. You know, historically, retail was around 1.8 to 2. That has come back a little bit. But again, there's a multiplier there. You, know, you look at the residential sector. Typically, when a migrant comes to Australia, they start looking to buy their first home at around 18 months to two years. So you can see that flow on coming through there as well. Student accommodation was the third one that yep. you earmarked. What's happening there? International education is one of our largest export sectors, so it's an important part of the overall Australian economy. Given what we had through the lockdown periods was ultimately international students weren't able to come and study here. So a number of those students did study online, but we saw a significant reduction in the overall numbers. What's been quite interesting is just how quickly those figures have rebounded. So if you look at the most recent data that has come out, it shows that through July, which is the most recent observation we have, there are international students to the total of 711,000 currently enrolled in Australian education facilities. And that's not just universities, that also includes TAFEs as well. Over the last year, that's been a 34% increase. And if you want to go back and look at where we were uh, back in 2019. In 2019, we peaked at around 755,000. So we've also almost got back to our peak levels very quickly. I think what's interesting when you look at the student numbers is it's actually becoming much more diverse. So while China is still our number one country of origin, representing 21% of international students in the country, back in 2019, it was 28%. So the overall share has come back. And India has actually been an area which has been growing, and India now ref, uh, reflects 17% of international students uh, here in Australia. So part of the investor story around the why of the student accommodation sector is, one, it's recovered quickly from a demand-side perspective. Two, Australia is very well positioned in terms of how highly rated our institutions are, our educational institutions are, so we're very attractive. Uh, we're very open to international students. But three, seeing greater diversification on country of origin is actually meaning that the demand side of the equation has less risk due to that diversification. And it's quite interesting when you look at different geographies, you know, Western Australia and South Australia now has India as the number one country of origin for international students. If you look at Queensland as an illustration, they have Brazil and Colombia up in the top numbers in terms of international students. So Queensland does very well from that movement of students out of South America into Australia. So each geography has its own very unique story. But it's quite interesting when you peel behind the headlines in terms of where students from different countries are ultimately studying in Australia. And if you also look at you know, the, the capital side of the equation, it's still very difficult to acquire assets within this sector. It's still a very small sector overall in terms of the investable universe. But just recently, we saw Blackstone make its first acquisition into the sector uh, with a, an acquisition of a portfolio of assets from Student One up in Brisbane. So we're certainly seeing cross-border investors saying that this is a sector. It's part of what they would call their broader living mandate, so BTR, a student uh, to a lesser extent co-living set as part of that. And we're certainly seeing a number of global investors saying that living is a as a as a sector is something we want to have greater exposure to moving forward. So is there investment in new supply or are the students coming in and sort of backfilling supply that would have been emptied out back in 2019, peak of COVID? 
if you look at the existing market and we tend to call it, you know, PBSA, so purpose-built student accommodation, you still find a lot of students end up in the private rental market. But when you look at those actual purpose-built assets, what you've typically seen is that their occupancy rates have recovered very strongly and they're starting to see rental growth uh, for those assets. And given the expectations of growth within international students moving forward, we're certainly seeing a number of groups actually look at saying, well, how can we participate in asset creation to actually cater for that demand, given the high occupancy rates that already exist? Look, part of the challenge around construction and development more broadly is we know that costs have gone up. The ability to get a builder or a contractor has got harder. Um, and, and prices have, have gone up in terms of what they're doing. And a number of the highly rated builders are ultimately saying we're no longer willing to participate on fixed price projects. We're looking at cost escalation projects. So that creates a level of uncertainty. And that's really across the whole sort of commercial property sector we're seeing that. And you're even seeing evidence of that within the, you know, the residential sector. You know, typically you're looking to hit a level of pre-sales to go and get construction finance. But then you're thinking about the builder, the, the credibility or the trustworthiness of that builder, and then saying quite, you know, probably rightly in an environment where costs are volatile, um, you know, we need to look at cost escalation contracts rather than fixed price. So it's just another layer of uncertainty that we're seeing within the broader development and construction markets. Okay, so they are what were the more challenged sectors over the past few years, and it looks like they're on a really great... So yeah, it's interesting. During that period, a number of people said, you know, how long would the recovery journey be? And I think what each of those three sectors can say is they have surprised on the upside in terms of how quickly that recovery is. You know, with hotels coming back to that 2019 ref par figure, largely this year, we touched on the international student numbers, you know, in terms of them always being back to where we were in 2019. And then retail, well, it's a very broad category. Yeah, we touched on the overall level of spending, but the releasing spread is certainly something that's very positive for, for that overall sector. And I think if you were to go back a few years ago, people would be talking about journeys to, you know, 25, 26 to get back to where we were in 2019. So I would certainly argue that that recovery journey has been quicker than, than a lot of people expected. How does that then influence expectations around the office Sector. I mean, office is probably the most polarizing sector that we see at the moment. And there's a whole range of views in terms of how that sector plays out longer term. You know, I think we've touched on it in these podcasts before, but it's still very relevant around the quality story. So when you look at our numbers through to the end of Q3, you know, we recorded positive absorption for prime grade assets of around 215,000. For secondary grade assets, we recorded minus 75,000 square meters. So that quality story, while we know it's very relevant day to day, we certainly see it coming through very strongly in our numbers. It's quite interesting when you go into the different geographies. You know, Sydney CBD, I would argue the story is quality and location. So if you look at the core precinct, which is Circular Quay up to Martin Place and, and down to King Street, we recorded 61,000 square metres of absorption. If you look at all other precincts, it's been negative. So we've seen a quality and a location story coming through very strongly in the numbers in Sydney. In Melbourne, it's very much reflected around quality with positive absorption for prime grade assets and negative absorption for secondary grade assets. 
once you get outside of the two larger geographies, the story's a little broader in terms of what we're seeing around demand. So yes, it's still demand for quality assets, but the secondary grade market's not been getting hit as hard in the Brisbane's, the Perth's and the Adelaide's. And part of the reason we're seeing that market be a little more resilient is there are a lot of very small organizations that occupy space. So typically 500 square meters or less, they're privately run business and they're very price sensitive businesses when they look at real estate. So they're still supporting that secondary grade market. But it's interesting when you look at the numbers, you know, the Brisbane vacancy rate at a whole fell to 11.5% in Q3. And we actually saw prime grade vacancy go into single digit territory, 9.9%. So just tiptoeing in for the first time since 2019. If you look at Perth, where vacancy is admittedly still elevated, uh, vacancy in Perth is now at the lowest level since 2014. So we're seeing within those two geographies that the positive absorption that's coming through is actually now equating to more vacancy factor. And interestingly, within the prime grade part of the market, we're finding that tenant options are starting to get fairly limited uh, within those geographies. Thank you. So that's offices. And the third point you want to raise was around transaction volumes. So basically, when you look at the headline numbers through the first nine months of this year, we've recorded just under 13 billion. So we're nowhere near what we call, you know, the financial crisis level of volumes. You know, back in 2008 and 2009, we saw very, very limited trading. So we're still seeing levels of trade. We're still seeing a little bit of liquidity in the market, not the, to the extent that we would like, but we're certainly not back at those 08-09 levels. But we do expect that this year will ultimately be the lowest level since 2012 in terms of overall transaction volume. So back in 2012, we had 19 billion trade. So typically Q4 is the, is the largest quarter for overall transaction volumes. So we're really going back to where we were, as I said, in that 2012 period, not all the way back to the financial crisis, but certainly low levels of overall volumes uh, compared to where we've been the last few years. Right. And are the economic conditions comparable? I mean, the economic conditions, I mean, every every cycle has its own set of unique economic ingredients. I think what's quite interesting when we speak to cross-border capital is the Australian story hasn't really diminished. You know, they talk about, you know, strong GDP growth outlook through the cycle, the population growth that we've spent a few time, a few moments on. You know, we're still AAA credit rating. You know, we're one of only nine countries that holds a AAA credit rating from all major rating agencies. I mean, if you look at WA, it's actually been upgraded to AAA from one of the rating agencies. You know, the volatility of returns are lower uh, in Australia than what we typically see within the region. And most global investors over a long period of time are ultimately looking to allocate a higher uh, proportion of their portfolio towards the Asia-Pacific region. So none of that story's changed. Essentially, the story that we're going through at the moment is a cost of capital story. You know, the cost of capital is higher. And ultimately, when the cost of capital is higher, investors start to reprice their, their return expectations for risk assets. And this isn't just a real estate story. This is an equity story. It's an infrastructure story. It's a story around all asset classes. So we're going through that journey at the moment. And what we would expect to see is that you will start to see an improvement in liquidity through the first half of 24, but really a significant improvement through the back half of, of 24 as we go through that price discovery journey. 
and ultimately we're in return hurdles set for risk assets. So what else is going to change between now and 24 when we start to see liquidity? I mean, what are some of the, the factors that will change? Well, ultimately, you start to get a level of confidence in what risk-free rate you should be using to price assets. So more recently, we've seen another step up in, in, in bond yields. The bond yield is very volatile at the moment. If you look at forecasts from economists, they do expect to see a reversion back from the level that we currently have at the moment. So once there starts to be a little more confidence around that reversion coming through, then simply it's just easier to price assets. You also have to go through you know, the valuation cycle in terms of when assets are, are marked to market, and that typically takes a, a number of cycles. And if you look through previous periods, it's typically a two-year journey. So we started this journey in probably June of last year, so when we get to the end of the year, we're about 18 months through. So June of 24, we would typically say it's been around two years uh, around this repricing journey that we've been on. All right. Andrew, thanks very much for that snapshot of our Q3 data. You know, we've said off camera that the cycle doesn't change all that drastically between quarters, but it's still nice to get a little bit of a, an update, I suppose, on, on how things are getting on. Anything you want to add? I mean, I think it's interesting when we look at Australia as we go through this journey as we spend a, a number of us have spent a large part of our career talking about office retail and logistics. And while the real estate alternatives are still very small, you know, we're certainly having a lot more discussion around, you know, BTR and, and PBSA that we sort of touched on earlier. You know, there's a lot more discussion around data centers as a as a sector. You know, healthcare related assets, you know, given our, our demographic profile, it doesn't look as bad as some other mature economies, but we clearly do have an aging population. So I think what's going to be really interesting moving forward is actually sectors that we viewed as niche, which ones of those have the potential to become mainstream uh, due to the demand tailwinds that they have, which is ultimately going to lead to more asset creation. So that's certainly going to be areas that we're going to be spending a lot more time focusing on moving forward. That sounds like a podcast we should dedicate to the alternatives on its own. Yep. Definitely. All right. Thanks very much. Nice to chat. No problem. Thank you.